1 Timothy. And we started off just looking at the overview of Timothy. And we, we recognize that there is good theology and bad theology. There is truth and there is what is not true. And really this whole book is focused on that idea. Primarily within the, the regards of the local church and how leaders are supposed to function and how the church is supposed to operate, things of that nature. But there's this overarching idea of good theology and bad theology. And today we're going to be taking a look at um, really the first set of instructions that Paul gives. Up to this point has kind of all been introduction. Um, he, he addresses it to Timothy. He tells what he's aiming for, addresses a few um, issues that needed to be dealt with. And then he got last week very, very personal into who he was and a recognition of what God had done for him. Based on all of that, we start off in the section in chapter 2 and what we're looking at. And Paul says, first of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. And for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for this body of Christ that you have brought together. Lord, thank you that we can enjoy one another, that we can rejoice together. Lord, thank you that you love us so much. Father, as we dig into your word, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our minds. Lord, help us to understand what you have for us. And then, Lord, help us to live it. Help us to to put it into practice and do what you desire of us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. There are certain passages and certain books of the Bible and certain parts of Scripture that are challenging. And I told you when we got started that as we go through the book of 1 Timothy that there will be difficult sections, and some of them less than pleasant. Um, Some of them we may argue with and we may disagree with. Those of you who've already read through the book multiple times have probably identified that next week is likely to be one of those. It's a challenging passage. It's a difficult section. But personally, I find that this week's is, is kind of tough. It's hard to implement. Um, there are some implications in it that may not be fully comfortable. And yet, when we understand the character of God, when we understand who he is and what he's called us to do, um, I think we need to not shy away from difficult passages, challenging texts. And like I said, I, I personally find this to be one of those. 
Now, we'll, we'll get to specifically what those are in a little bit, but any time that we deal with Scripture that it has a challenge in it that's difficult, I want to encourage you, face it head on. Go straight into it and read what does the text say. There's a lot of argument. There's a lot of difficulties. A lot of times the passages that are hard are hard because we don't want to accept them, not because it's difficult to understand what it says. And so I want to encourage you, anytime that you come across one of those, and particularly as we look at this one, go on based on what does the text say? What does the Bible have to say? Not what do I want it to say? What do I feel like it says? What do I wish that it said, but it doesn't? Those aren't very helpful. It's what does the text say? Now, Paul starts off and he says, first of all, I urge, I encourage that certain things happen. He strongly recommends that something be a priority based on what he's been talking about. This section doesn't stand alone. It's based on that testimony that he had talked about, that overwhelming grace of God, that super abundance of God's mercy and love that he had poured out that we talked about last week. Based on that, I urge or I encourage the first thing that you do is something. Four things, actually. And I think I've got those up here. Yes, I encourage, I admonish, I beg you to do four things. Now, in the handouts that I prepared, um, and those should be posted online with the sermon, um, they go out with the emails, I, I ask a bunch of different questions. And I, really, this is just to encourage you, interact with the text, look at the passages, look at the scripture. And uh, sometimes those can be challenging. Um, I listed these four things, and I put the, these numbers next to them. If you are familiar with using Strong's, those are the Greek numbers to be able to look those up. Now, one of the challenges as, as a pastor, as a preacher, is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. That's what we're about. And so I wanted to pause just for a moment and show you a tool that I use a lot, um, that I find very helpful, and so this next slide, it's Blue Letter Bible. How many of you are familiar with this website? Okay, those of you who use it a lot, you probably are very familiar with it. Um, in these handouts, I'll have those numbers for you to look up and, and just get an idea of, okay, what's it talking about? What kind of word is this? How does it fit in the text, etc.? That's very important for understanding the passage is understanding the words that are there. This is a tool that I find incredibly useful. It's Blue Letter Bible. You go to the website, find the passage that you want, and then right at the top, that it says tools. Click on tools, and it brings up this interlinear. And you can see the original Greek text, and then obviously I don't speak Greek. Most people don't. Yes, I went to seminary and learned it, but I almost failed it. So I have to use a lot of tools. I wanted to give you a tool that I use. It lists all of those. And so right at, on this one, you see it says first, protos, that's the Greek word, first things first. He wants this to be a priority as you dig into it. Then you'll notice that there's these words or these numbers um, that list down on both sides here. Those are the numbers that I'm giving you. So I don't want you to feel like, oh, I have to spend hours and hours and hours trying to open up this passage just to make use of this supplemental. It, it doesn't take a really long time. If you have tools like this, go to that website, find the passage, 
And then you can look at those words and get an idea and an understanding of what is, what is Isaac talking about? What is this passage talking about? What is, what is Paul trying to draw out? And so we have these four words. If you go to the next slide, we have these four words and you can click on the number and it pulls up the strongs for you. That way you don't have to have four, five, six different books open that you're searching through. It's all right there, nice and simple. Um, I, I really like that website. If you hadn't figured it out, it's really useful. I still use all those other books, but this should help make it a little easier. You get the word that's in the text, the Greek number, and then we can begin to understand a little bit about what is that. What's it talking about? So Paul, he urges, he encourages, he implores, he begs. He's saying, hey, please, based on what we've been talking about, based on this idea of the superabundance of the grace of God and his mercy, I want you to do something. And this is the first part in which Paul actually starts saying, do this because of that. I urge that entreaties, that prayers, that petitions, and thanksgiving be made for all men. We are to seek God. We're to, to address God and ask him certain things. We're to pray for or, or beg from God certain things. And we're supposed to give thanks for certain things. Well, well who is that? What is that? It says that we are to... Pray on behalf of all men. Now, there's a, there's a wonderful phrase, and I'm going to end up using it over and over today. All means all, and that's all all means. So when it says, pray for all men, who does it mean that we need to pray for? All men, all men right? Okay, this is, this is one of those, I don't know, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just me. But that can get a little challenging. In fact... Yesterday, Tiff and I were driving back from a, from a uh, conference, and, and we were talking about particular individuals that Isaac struggles to pray for. Um, we'll get to that in a moment. The next verse says specifically for kings and for all who are in authority. Now, if you, next slide, we've got who should we pray for. Now, obviously, it's for rulers, that's for kings. And then for leaders, for those who are in authority. But who specifically is that? Well, I, I started doing a little checking and, and researching. Like I said, I'm fairly new to this area. I don't know all the county commissioners and all of the, the leadership in this area. So, Mark, if you'd hit the next one. I went ahead and listed off some of those individuals. And these are their names. And I want to encourage you. It Maybe you know, it's going to flash them up fairly quickly. Maybe some of them are a little more challenging to pray for than others. I'm not going to get political. I'm just going to say the Bible says pray for all men. All means all, and that's all all means. Specifically, pray for kings and all who are in authority. Now, Isaac has a running dialogue in his own head when I deal with Scripture and when I come across some of these passages. And I'm like, but, 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 but what about, I mean, do I have to pray for that guy? Do I, do, do I have to pray for her? I mean, yes, that's what the text says, right? 
Is, is there any argument that that's what the text says? Okay, okay. May, maybe this is just Isaac, so come along with me for the ride, but that's what it says. Pray for them. Okay, okay. I know my Old Testament well enough. You ever read in the Psalms? They're, they're called imprecatory Psalms, where Paul, or sorry, not Paul, where David is crying out to God, and he prays, in essence, this is the Isaac version, God, would you just wipe them out because they're terrible, horrible people? You, you ever read those? I, I'll admit, I draw a little bit of comfort from those. Unfortunately, Paul doesn't let me get away with that one. What does Paul say? He says, I urge, urge four things. I urge that you pray for them, that you give thanks for them. When was the last time that you gave thanks for our governor or our president? On the previous slide, I had some of our county commissioners and I had our sheriff and our house and state representatives. We should be praying for them regularly. We should be praying on their behalf that God would guide them to himself. Uh, Admittedly, most of them are not where they ought to be spiritually. You know that, I know that. We should be praying that they would get saved, first and foremost. But the challenge in this passage is that thanksgivings, that's, that's not a separate one. It's not pray for them, for the ones that you like, and then be thankful for the other. You know, pray for everybody and then be thankful for the ones that you do like. That's not what it says. That's not how it works. All four of these should be a regular part of how we pray. Paul starts off and he says, I encourage, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings, all of those be made on behalf of all men. Again, all means all, and that's all all means. Specifically, for kings and for all who are in authority. Now, he he gives the reasoning. He gives the basis. And, And this one, I think, is very significant and very important. So that, or in order that, we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Why are we supposed to pray for them? Well, on a, on a simple, basic, semi-selfish level, we're to pray for them so that we can live peacefully, tranquilly. Now, as I, as I was studying through this and reading through it, I'm like, okay, I suppose that I can pray for those individuals because God told me to, and so that I can, you know, live peacefully, so that I don't have to deal with the government. I mean, in all honesty, my preference would be the government leaves me alone, I leave them alone, and we go about and have a happy life. In fact, that's kind of what Paul's saying. Until you start digging into some historical context. You guys remember who this is from and who it's to, right? Who's this written to? Timothy. Timothy. Okay. Where was Timothy. In Ephesus, right? Paul had left him. If if you don't remember for sure, it's back in verses 1 and 2. Paul had left him in Ephesus. Well, what do we know about Ephesus? What is is that town? Huh? 
it was not a good town. It, it was not. If you, if you start doing any studying and digging in, at the time that this was written, Tiffany, Timothy, my wife's name is Tiffany, we're talking about Timothy. <clears throat> Timothy was in Ephesus. This is between the second and third largest city in the entire Roman Empire. It's huge. It was the cosmopolitan center of that region. It was the regional capital where there was tons of trade that went in and out. It also had the largest uh, temple to the goddess Artemis, also known as Diana. If you ever take a look at Acts chapter 19, uh, Paul had a run-in with some of the followers of Diana who, uh, because people were getting saved, they weren't going to the temple and they weren't spending their money on that stuff. And so they kind of tried to run Paul out of town. Paul says, pray for them. Be thankful for them. Ephesus, in essence, as I was thinking through it, if it's um, second or third largest, it's the, the cosmopolitan center, it's the, the capital of the region, in essence, we're talking about like New York City, L.A., San Francisco, something of that nature. Okay? I don't know about you, but I have enough trouble just going up to Bend because I like small towns. I, I'm loving Lapine. It's a great small town community. I, I don't care for the big cities. But that's what Paul's talking to Timothy here. This big, huge metropolitan city that, that is front lines of anything and everything. San Francisco, L.A., Portland. That's the kind of place that Paul is telling Timothy, pray for the leaders in that town, in that area, in that region. What about Paul? I mean, it's, it's easy to be somewhere else and then um, tell somebody else do that. But what about Paul? If, if you've been here on, uh, for Sunday schools, we've been going through the missionary journeys and the life of Paul and kind of what he's been dealing with. And we just ended Acts, where we find that Paul is in prison for things that he didn't do. He's been falsely accused and he's thrown in prison and he, he ends up for a couple of years kind of in Israel and then he ends up for a couple of years in Rome in prison, falsely accused. Finally, he is released, and that's about the time that this was written, is after he'd been released. But he's less than two years from being executed by Nero. Let me read you something. This is from um, the Encyclopedia Britannica. Nero became famous for his personal debaucheries and extravagances. He's likely the one who caused the burning of Rome, burned it down to the ground, and also famous for his persecution of Christians. And Paul says, be thankful for him. Pray for him. Go to God on his behalf. This guy that's about to execute Paul. And Paul says, I'm thankful for him. I pray for him. That's tough. Like I said, there are some passages in Scripture that they kind of get to you. We're to pray for them. We're encouraged to pray for them to intercede on their behalf, in part because we have a desire to lead a peaceable, quiet life. And, and he says how to do that. He says that this is, 
um, verse 2, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. One of the reasons that we pray for them is so that we can live the way that God wants us to live. Okay? And that's, that's not just the American idea of God's guns and freedom or anything of that nature. That's so that in any situation, any circumstance, any location, we live a godly life. We live the way that God wants us to live. And it, it's really easy to pause there and, and say, okay, that's, that's the reason, that's all that there is, that's great. So that I can have a, a good, quiet life, I suppose I can pray for them. But I think that the rest of the passage still connects into this. So we're going we're gonna to continue on, we're going to take a look at this and find out that I don't think that it's just for us. I don't think that the reason that we pray for them, the reason that we're thankful for them, the reason that we, we have entreaties on their behalf is so that I get the benefits, so that I get to enjoy life. I think that we're about to find out that there's something much, much more than that. Verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. What is, what is good? What is acceptable? That we be praying for them. That we be giving thanks for them. Also, that we live a quiet and tranquil life in godliness and in dignity. All of that is good and acceptable. Why? Verse 4, I think, gives us an explanation. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the truth, to the knowledge, or come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. And for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The reason, I believe, that God wants us to do this is contained in this section. Not so that I can live tranquil and peaceful and all of that. That's, that's part of it. That's a real item. But I think more than that, we get a picture of the character of God and who he is and what he wants, what he desires. It says that God desires that all men be saved. Now, this is one of those where we get into some of the theological issues and challenges of this passage. Um, in a moment, I'm, I am going to deal with the implications. Um, some of these implications are not very popular. If you follow the popular movements of evangelicalism, you'll know that there is a re reformed movement going on. And a lot of their theology is based on what's called Calvinism. And a couple of years ago, I guess about six years, seven years ago, Jack preached a series on Calvinism. It's still in our archives on Sermon Audio. I want to encourage you, go back and look at those. Um, I think there were four sermons. Just the one that's like summarized is really, really good. I mean, they're all good, but that one is really, really good and helpful in understanding a lot of the issues and the challenges that go on with that. I don't want to get fully sidetracked on the Calvinism, Arminianism debates and issues and all of that. What I want to do is look at this passage and what does it say. But we do need to be aware that there is a popular movement that says that God only desires some to be saved. 
or that God only paid the penalty for some to be saved. I've said it before. I'll continue to say it. All means and that's all all means. All right. So who does God desire to be saved? It says in verse 4 that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what the text says. Now, I enjoy reading a lot of Calvinistic authors. There are some really good ones who have great theology in other areas. This is one of those I cannot get past. What does the text say? God desires that all men be saved. That's what he wants. That's what he wishes for. That's what he uh, hopes would happen. Now, obviously, there's a question. Okay, if that's what God wants, why doesn't it happen? That's a good question. We'll get to a little bit of it here in a bit. But we do have to recognize that he desires all to be saved. In fact, so much so that in verse 6, it says that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. Okay? So what the text says is that God wants everybody to be saved. God made provision for everybody to be saved. So that anyone and everyone who accepts Jesus Christ as their personal Savior can be saved. That's what it says. That's what it means. Now, verse 5, I think, is really fascinating. It's, it's inside of this, and I don't want to miss it. So we're going we're gonna to back up a little bit and take a look at verse 5. You'll remember the context of what Paul's dealing with is that there are some people who are false teachers, and they're, they're teaching things that aren't true. And coupled that with, Timothy, you are supposed to proclaim the truth. Now, these false teachers, they want to be teachers of the law. They think that they're Jews who know everything, and they got it all figured out, and they want to teach the law. Well, here, Paul pulls out a phrase from the law that is, it's almost like the national, um, what is that called? Declaration of who they are. Uh, if, you'll, if you'll turn with me real quick, we'll go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. <clears throat> just Exodus, just numbers. Yes, I do have to sing through sometimes to find my passage. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 6. Just a simple little verse, and yet, like I said, this was almost the motto. This was something that the, the Jews were constantly bringing up and noticing and acknowledging. And even today, if you look through history, um, as, it, as it tracks religions and people groups and everything else, this is something that is, is unique in the development of world history and in cultures throughout the ancient Near East is this saying, this phrase, that they would repeat over and over, that they, everyone knew that was very distinct about Jews. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, or listen, pay attention to this. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. We call this the Shema, and it's, like I said, it's like their pledge of allegiance, almost. It's their, their national motto. God is one. And I think it's significant that Paul uses this idea 
because what he's been dealing with is there are false teachers who are trying to be legalists, who are trying to take the law. They, they act like they know the law, but they don't understand it. And Paul's saying, hey, the God of the Old Testament, the God that you guys, the, the Jews have claimed to follow, that's who I'm talking about. There is one God. There is only one. We don't serve a polytheistic God in which there are multiple gods and many gods. That's part of what Paul's dealing with in Ephesus and that culture that's going on. We, we aren't following all of that. We're following one God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is who we are talking about. There is one God, and connected with that, there is one mediator. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. There it is. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. <clears throat> now, the entire book of Hebrews really deals with this idea of who, who is Jesus, what is his role in all of this, and how it all fits together. Um, we're not going to delve into all of that. I think that Hebrews chapter 9 kind of summarizes it a little bit. We, look, we looked last week at John chapter 1, right? How that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And that's part of who Paul was saying uh, he was the greatest or the worst of sinners. Well, here he's continuing this idea of understanding who Christ is, and we, we find that he is the mediator between God and man. Hebrews unpacks that idea quite a bit. And in ver or, yeah, verse 11 of chapter 9, it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, in order that, since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed unto the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the internal, eternal inheritance. Same idea, the, the author of Hebrews deals with it, very wordy and a lot going on there. But this idea that Christ gave himself, shed his own blood, and that that was the basis it wasn't the bulls and the heifers and the goats and the sheep and the lambs. It wasn't all of that blood through those sacrifices. It was the sacrifice of Christ himself that gave him entrance and access to be able to offer that before God on our behalf. He is the mediator. He's the go-between. He's the one that has achieved salvation for us, that has made this possible. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 We'll take one more look at another verse and then go back to 
Timothy. <clears throat> in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 14, but this, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are, who are sanctified." Going back to 1 Timothy. Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. These passages in Hebrews talk about the way that that worked, how that was effective. Christ had to shed his own blood. He gave that and he offered his body, his blood as a sacrifice for us so that we could be made right with God. Going back to verse 4, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. Hebrews deals a lot in the way in which that worked, how it functioned, how it worked out. But in Timothy, in the book of 1 Timothy, we find that God did this through Christ to be that ransom, to be that mediator for us on our behalf. Now, there is... A question that does come up, I, I commented, I mentioned the, this idea that there are those who try and limit the scope of this and say, well, you know, yeah, Jesus, Jesus paid the penalty, but it's not really for all. And so I think that's what I've got up here. Yeah. In, in Mark, there is a question that comes up. And so I do want to address this and deal with it briefly as well. So if you would, let's turn to, to Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, uh, Jesus is actually the one who's talking. And he, he explains why he came. <clears throat> In 10 verse 45, he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Okay? And so one of the issues that comes up is people read that and they're like, oh, well, there's many. So not for all because it's many. Well, if all is everybody, how many people are there? How many, how many people are there in the world today? Anybody know? Six billion, seven billion, somewhere in that range, I think. I don't remember for sure. Well, that is many. That's a lot. There are those who will try and use this as a contradiction and be like, oh, well, you know, over here it says that and over here it says all and that they just don't, it's not a contradiction. It's, it's very easy to look at that and see the text says that Christ came to be the ransom for many, for a large number. 
Well, if all means all, all is definitely a very large number. So don't get hung up on some of those little uh, side trails that people will try and pull out and create as arguments that they just don't fit. I had a, a professor, I had, I had two professors that one of them I never thought I would ever quote. He was a great guy, but he, he was a little eccentric. But he had a phrase when dealing with this. And it, it came back to my mind, and I'm like, I, I can't not share this. He was, he was an interesting individual. But he would say, don't be a Calvinist. Don't be an Arminianist. Be a Biblicist. What does the Bible say? Follow the Bible. Be devoted not to a person or to a philosophy or to a theology. Be devoted to the Bible. And so what does the text say? Christ himself admits, I came to be the ransom for many because there are tons and tons of people who need to be saved. Paul expands on that and explains it. And he's like, hey, there's one God and one mediator between God and man. That man is Christ Jesus, who we just looked at in Hebrews. He gave himself. He shed his own blood to pay the ransom, to pay the sacrifice, to pay the penalty for our sins. He did that not for some, but for all. He paid the ransom for all. And all means all, and that's all all means. Unfortunately, we do recognize that not all will accept that. And there are a lot of reasons that people give for not wanting to trust Christ, not wanting to follow him. It, it impedes on the lifestyle that they want to live. It acknowledges, it forces them to acknowledge that there's a higher power, that there's someone greater and better than they are. It, I don't know, there's all kinds of reasons that people have. And for some reason or another, there are individuals, possibly even in here, that don't want to accept that free gift that God has given for them. Yet that doesn't change the truth of what the text says, that God desires... He wants everyone to come to him, to be saved. And we know, I'm, I'm sure you guys have heard it. In fact, this summer, uh, Zeke has the opportunity to, to do some ministering and some, some missionary work. And one of the things he's going to be studying is this Romans road. And how does someone get saved? And it, that's a wonderful thing. I'm, I'm excited for you, bud. I hope that it will be a great opportunity for you. But how do we reconcile this idea that God wants everyone to be saved and yet not everyone will, that's tough. I don't deny it. We could talk about it. We'll, maybe in Sunday evening men's thing, we'll, we'll discuss some of that. But what I want to emphasize today, right now, is that God's desire is that everyone be saved. That means as you go out and you interact with people, and you have opportunity to share the gospel with them. You don't have to be thinking, well, maybe this isn't one of the elect. Maybe this isn't one that Jesus didn't die for or whatever. That, no. It, it says, plain and simple, clear as day, God desires all to be saved. Christ paid the ransom for all. So as you have interactions this week, and you talk to people, you can share the gospel with confidence that God wants them to accept it, and to be saved. And as you read the news, 
and listen to the paper or listen to the news and read the papers or any of that stuff or go on Facebook or YouTube or whatever the other ones are is you have opportunity and you find those people that you don't necessarily want to be thankful for or pray for God wants them to be saved too those names that I had listed up there earlier that some of us uh, be honest with yourself you don't have to say it out loud but be honest with yourself some of you have probably prayed imprecatory prayers over certain individuals that I listed wishing for their demise I hear laughter I'm assuming you know what I'm talking about But God gave his only begotten son for them. God desires that they be saved. And here, Paul is commanding us, pray for them. I urge, first of all, of first or primary importance, entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made for those people that we don't necessarily want in the positions that they're in. But that's what we're commanded to do. That's what we're called on to do. You guys, you, you know that I always have the so what. The what's, what's the point, what's the takeaway. This one's pretty obvious. If we, if we get rid of all the extra and our, our own opinions, our own thoughts and our own stuff, and just read what does the text say. So what? What should we do with this? Because of who God is, because of his character, because he is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, because of that, because of the superabundance of the grace and mercy and love of Christ, we need to be praying for and thankful for those political leaders that we don't care for. As I was going through the list and I I looked up a bunch of different things, there's Supreme Court justices. I would say they're in positions of authority and power. There's county officials in positions of power and authority. There's, what about other nations? How many of you have prayed for some of the countries that are not doing so well in their relationships with others? I'm thinking Ukraine and Russia, China, a bunch of the Middle East are persecuting Christians, executing them. Most likely today, while I've been speaking, somewhere in the world, a Christian lost his life because he was a believer. That's who we're supposed to be praying for. For the leadership, for the authority, for the governors, for the rulers, for the kings who do that. There are passages of Scripture that are hard. They're uncomfortable, they're difficult, they're theologically challenging, but more than that, they're personally challenging. The simple takeaway is pray. Pray for people in government, pray for leaders, pray for the leaders in the church, for the person sitting next to you, pray for people. Because of who God is, because we understand the character of God, pray for them. We're going to take the next five to ten minutes, and have our prayer time now. And then the, the music guys are going to come up and we'll, we'll sing another song. And, and this week it's just the same, or it's a couple of verses, one verse from a song we already sang. Sweet Hour of Prayer. So it's a nice, simple one.
But I want to encourage you, take some time right now and pray for these folks. And then as you go through the week, when you hear the news and you get upset about somebody, pray for them because God gave his only begotten son for them. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, what a awesome thing it is that you, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, would allow us to come into your presence 
and to pray. Lord, first of all, I pray that you would forgive me for taking that for granted. Lord, it is an amazing gift that we have, and yet I overlook it so often. Thank you that we've had just a little bit of time to do that. Father, I do pray that as we go out this week, that when there are times when we may not have your love for others, that we would submit our lives to you and that we would pray for those other people. Lord, you desire that we pray for all men. So I pray that you would help us to have the strength and the mindset that you have of loving them. And you loved them so much that you died for them. You paid the ransom for all of us. Lord, thank you. Thank you for that. Father, we do look at the world around us and we recognize that it is not following you, not going the way that you want it to. But you have left us here and given us a task, given us a mission to share your love with those around us. Lord, as we've looked at uh, those who are in authority, they do have a responsibility, but we have a responsibility to pray for them. And not, not always the way that we would want to, but the way that you desire us to, with, with thanksgiving. Praying on their behalf because you gave your son for them. So Lord, help us to submit ourselves to you that we would be able to lead a quiet and peaceful life, that we would be able to live in godliness, serving you day by day. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that we can come boldly before you. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the time that we've had together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I know prayer is one of those challenging things. It's, it's an amazing blessing. It's an amazing gift that God has given to us. And yet, it can be challenging. I get that. But what a joy it is when we understand the heart of God that we can go before him in prayer on behalf of others, even others that we may not always like as well as we ought to. God loves them. And we should as well. Shall we stand and sing the first verse of Sweet Hour of Prayer? Mm-hmm.